Thank you, Jessica. Appreciate that worship team. Uh, what what hymn was that? Blessed assurance. That's what you meant to say, Jeff. I, I could tell. <clears throat> this is my story. What is your story? Actually, uh, interesting because I had intended to, to close the sermon today with this this idea of uh, don't let Satan write your story, and it has to do with the uh, with the temptation of Christ. But before we dive into Matthew chapter four, um, just a reminder that next week, next Sunday. We will have our traditional Thanksgiving share service, and that's where the body has an opportunity. Rather than sitting there and just hearing this voice that you hear Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you get to hear a variety of voices, Lord willing, and from a variety of different perspectives. And you are given an opportunity to just share um, a minute, two, five of what you are grateful for. Something that God has done in your life. So it's an opportunity for I envision it as the the halls of this church or the the sanctuary just being filled with a lot of different voices of thanksgiving and gratitude to God. That is the vision for it. Uh, There have been a few that have contacted me. There's still plenty of room. So I appreciate your prayers about this. If God would have you to be a part of this service for next week, please contact me, call me, email me, um, whatever would be great. There's lots of different forms of communication these days. You can't stay out of each other's lives, even if you try these days. So please contact me. So we are in Matthew chapter 4, and we have been talking about the temptation of Christ. Last week, we even talked about fasting. I'm not going to mention that word this Sunday very often, because this is Thanksgiving week, right? And I don't think too many of us are thinking about fasting. We're thinking about how much food can we fit on the table for this week. But um, we've been looking into this idea of the temptation. You know, there's never been a time in history where man has not faced or have to deal with temptations. You know, every man, every woman, regardless of age or race, has in some way, great or small, had to deal with this bothersome thing called temptation. And if you are breathing, you will know that temptation is still a big thing today. It's something that we have to face today. Uh, Satan means to destroy us. He means to make our lives miserable. He means to draw us away from the living God. So how do we fight it? What is our strategy? And what what is involved in temptation? Well, a Catholic website that I looked at tells the story of St. Benedict. St. Benedict, um, he he was... uh, well, he became a saint, which means he eventually did something very great in his Christian life. But this time, St. Benedict, before he was a saint, was really battling with temptation. He was trying to figure out how, how can he escape this. So one of his methods was to wear this really bothersome, hairy shirt so that the, the, the uncomfortable hair of this shirt, I don't know what kind of hair it was, uh, was on the inside. So it was a constant irritant to his skin. 
And he was hoping that maybe God would have mercy. Maybe this little form of suffering would grant him some kind of favor so that the temptations would not be so intense. Eventually, uh, he still wanted to fight temptation. So he and his hairy shirt removed themselves from society. They wanted to get away from the world and the temptations that he was uh, um, experiencing. So he wound up isolating himself in a cave kind of on the side of a cliff uh, to get away from it all. And literally his fellow believers would lower his food and water down with a rope to this hole in the side of the wall, um, kind of hard to get to. And so he would live there to remove himself. Well, unfortunately, that didn't even work because one of the days that he was living in that uh, cave into his mind entered the memory of a beautiful woman that he had met and isolated as he was he could not get her out of his head and it got to the point where it grew and grew and he decided i just have to see her again i just have to ha- to to have her and so he was determined to leave his cave his place of isolation and go seek after this woman That he could not get out of his mind. But on his way out, he noticed there happened to be a briar patch next somewhere near his cave. On his way to um, try to indulge in this temptation, he sees the briar patch as a way out. And so he takes off his hairy shirt and he takes off the rest of whatever clothing he had on. And he casts himself into this thorny briar patch and he rolls around in, in it. Uh, wounded and bloody until the temptation is gone. So he brought his his method was to bring physical pain to his body to bring relief to his tormented soul. He saw that as a way to stop him in his tracks to him. It was worth it. Because he, he wanted his soul to burn and be on fire for God instead of to burn and be on fire for sin. Now, how do we fight temptation and what can we learn about temptation from this experience of Jesus's? The truth of the matter is, though, every man has been tempted throughout the history. There has only been one. That never caved in. One that never gave in to this battle of temptation. And that is Christ the King. So this passage is important. We've been looking at it already for a few weeks. There'll be one more sermon after this to close it off. We'll look at two of the temptations this morning. The third one and the victory uh, in, in the sermon to come, but he wants us to know about, to be informed, to listen, to learn, and perhaps to follow his lead in fighting our battles of temptation. So let's go ahead and read this text again, since it's just 11 verses in chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil left him. That's what we want our story to be when we have our temptations. First point in this first temptation that I want to look at, and we've already spent some time exploring it, and, and it does have to do with trust, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But I want to point out something that we have not talked about yet, and that is this idea of casting doubt. You don't have to, to go far to realize that what the enemy does really even before or on his way to present the temptation is to cast doubt. So here's Jesus in this wilderness experience. It parallels the wilderness experience and the temptations of Israel. And Jesus in this scene is literally representing humanity. And it is through his victory that humanity will experience victory over temptation, over sin, over the bondage to evil. And will be entered into uh, the promised land where we're free of all of these things. But first, Jesus has to have victory and endure this assault of the enemy. So if we just notice, you don't have to go far, just notice really the first word in this temptation. Satan begins with the word if so, there's a method there that we should take note of. If you are the son of God, what is he doing here? He's casting doubt. If you are the son. he doesn't say, Jesus, because you are the son of God, you can do this miracle. You can just snap your fingers and make bread for yourself. He says, if you are. The son of God, Satan enjoys interjecting doubt into situations that are unquestionable. Think things that have already been determined, things that are sure. And he's quite good at that. This is what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God say, I mean, what did we just read? What did God just say? Did God say that this idea of casting doubt is important to us, if we're going to listen to the thoughts that come into our mind and perhaps where are they coming from and what are they challenging? He's trying to break down here the divine reality that has been set by God, the authoritative word of God. Are you sure you heard him correctly? Or are you sure that's the reality? Or are you sure that's what he has said? Because I can give you some alternative things to entertain and to think about. He enjoys whispering these kinds of doubts 
into our ears. Just because something is sure and maybe a fact to us does not mean that the enemy is just going to leave it alone. He will continue to come at it. So he finds room for questioning where there is no room for questioning. He doesn't honor God's authority. If you are the son of God, prove it. Work a miracle. You're hungry. You need something to eat. If you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, then prove it by turning the stones into bread. Now, why would Satan bother to do this? Because apparently casting doubt is a powerful thing. It is a powerful weapon. It can be a gateway to very dangerous things. Now, think about how many Christians perhaps you've heard of, perhaps you know them. They have had unquestionable conversions. I mean, you knew them before for Christ. You know them after Christ. And you see, well, maybe there's some ups and downs, but there is unquestionable fruit. If there's such a thing as a God, if there's such a thing as salvation and conversion and a transformed life, they are it. And yet... If you were to ask some of these people that you think are so close to God and they're spiritual giants, have you ever questioned your salvation? You might be surprised at how many might say, you know, there was a period of time or there have been periods of time where I questioned my very salvation. I mean, that's how powerful a thing that doubt can be. How sure can you be about your salvation? How certain can you be about heaven? Can you really trust God? I mean, look around and think about your emotions and your thoughts and how life is going for you. Can you really trust God? Can you really trust this book that is, has, uh, is so irrelevant? I mean, haven't we moved beyond the archaic things that you're spending your mornings or evenings reading about in this word. Do you really think that you have what it takes to do life? You really think you have what it takes to live for God? Is this all life is or maybe are there other things out there? Other options, other ways that are more sure and truer to live by? See, you read scripture and you see that there's this clarion call from the Bible. God wants his children to rush into him with abandon and cling to him and love him and trust him with their entire being. And then you have the enemy whispering all these thoughts of doubt. If and did he really question marks? Do you think Satan knew that this was the son of God? Absolutely. And yet it did not stop him from preluding this temptation with this idea of doubt. We cannot expect Satan to agree with truth. He wants to interject doubt because doubt can be the gateway to fear, can be the gateway to anxiety, and if unchecked, can be the gateway to unbelief. The doubts are like, you think about 
all the doubts and, and, and insecurities. Doubts are kind of like the grains of sand that Jesus warns the foolish man not to build his house on. You, you can't get uh, a, a foothold. You, you can't feel safe. You can't feel secure. It's only a matter of time before something's going to come and wash it away. And that's what doubt does. It, it undermines any kind of conviction or confidence or surety that we might have about anything in life. There's nothing safe as far as the enemy is concerned. He will cast doubt in any area of our lives. And yet God's word says, build your life on the rock. It's truth. You're not going to fall through it. It's not going to crack. It's not going to turn into dust. It's not going to shift. He's offering us this beautiful gift of tremendous security, this place where our soul can rest and find its greatest delight and its and its greatest joy. And the enemy is hard at work to rob us from the possibility and the potential of our souls getting that feeling that it longs for. I say that loosely, but I believe that, well, it's been a, a different way to say that. The quote, I think it was Augustine that said that the heart uh, will constantly wander until it finds what it what it wants, because our souls long after God. I think that that there is a certain feeling that our souls enjoy because that's how we we were created in the image of God. And until we find them in Christ, we'll just remain restless. The enemy loves for us to be restless. To be itchy like that hairy, that uncomfortable hairy shirt where we should be comfortable. We were not created to live in constant doubt. We can't live. It'll drive us crazy. We'll be miserable. This idea of never knowing anything. Now, doubt has its place. Don't get me wrong. Curiosity is a part of being in the image of God. So doubt has its place. There are things we should question. There are things we should doubt. The difference is that the enemy wants us to doubt in the areas that we shouldn't and then not doubt in the areas that we should. Just believe this. But don't believe this. He wants to turn a rock into sand. So, yeah, there's a place for if, but this is not one of them. Satan doesn't settle for things just because... We have he will he will find areas that we have enjoyed in our lives that we have enjoyed maybe a great sense of security. Well, at least I have this. There's a lot of other things, but at least I have this. He has a way of finding those things, of knowing those things and interjecting doubt so that we will not feel secure. Do you think we have you ever heard the word? Or the term, that person is insecure. You hear it. That's a word that's been around for a long time. And, you know, words come and go, but that word just has stayed. Because I think there's a lot of truth to this idea that really society at large has this sense of insecurity about a lot of things. And that insecurity is often fed with doubts. So the enemy will find those areas. And exploit them. Does your spouse really love you? Or 
Or are they planning an affair and you just don't even know about it? They're just trying to hide that. Do your friends really consider you a friend? Or are they just pretending? And it'll all crumble before too long. People do that. Does your boss really think you're doing a great job? Or are you about to get canned? Can you believe anything that people say? Are these even really your parents? Do you really even know where you came from? Can we be sure about anything? Wouldn't it it be convenient for the enemy to get people living with this question, can we even be sure about anything? And yet that is the reality for many today. You can't be sure about anything. Which is, in a sense, the definition of relativism. You've heard it from the pulpit. You've heard it for years. Another very popular term, especially from Christendom, because we believe in absolute truths. Relativism, and think about this in terms of this temptation and the enemy and casting doubt. Uh, The definition is it's the doctrine or the teaching that knowledge, truth, and morality exists in relation to uh, people's culture, society, and historical context as opposed to absolutes, moral absolutes. That's a fancy way of saying, in other words, Individuals create their own truth and morality and knowledge. But that culture or that society, but over here, this culture and society has its own truth and knowledge and morality. So, in other words, no, we can't land on an absolute truth. It doesn't apply to every people in all historical contexts and every culture. You make up your own. That's relativism. What What does casting doubt do? It undermines any idea of something that is true to all people at all time, which is what Scripture says about itself, self-attesting, that it's for all people at every time, eternal truths. The enemy undermines these things. Can we really, really be sure about anything? I don't know that we can without the Bible. I don't know that we can without belief in God. I mean, how can two truths contradict each other in two different cultures and yet come together and be true. It's kind of the idea of it's true for you, but not for me. Who is behind all that kind of thinking? And that'll give you a headache, won't it? Trying to reconcile with all that. I mean, God has spoken. And any theory that detracts us from that, you know who is behind it. It's the one who loves to get into our heads and cast doubt. This is a little example as I thought about this because I I, I read this article recently. Uh, So um, it's kind of common knowledge that as far as scientific realms and educational realms that and I'll say macro evolution. That's how we came about. Not creationism, not spoken into existence, but macro evolution. It, It really the scientific community and education is settled on that. And so it's, it's not even up for grabs anymore. So it's taught in a lot of educational institutions as a fact, even though it's uh, supposed to be a, a theory. But at the same time, um, the people that are teaching this as a fact and, and a theory, it's, it's a settled truth. Don't even try to question it. Also have questions of their own and are looking for other possible theories and truths about our, our existence. 
So you'd think, well, wait a minute, if this is a settled truth and there's no need to question it, then why would you be looking for other truths? Well, it's, it's not so new, but it was kind of new to me. I didn't know that people actually thought this. I thought it was just uh, an idea, a good idea for a movie. But there are philosophers, notable philosophers and scientists that now believe there is the good possibility that we exist uh, in a matrix. And you've seen the movie, perhaps, I think it's called The Matrix with Keanu Reeves. Uh, and the, uh, the scientific proof has to do with the energy in the cosmic rays. I don't know. It's got to do with the energy. Um, ask David Taylor. He'll tell you. Um, the, it's energy with the cosmic rays. Uh, and so the idea, and th- they take this serious now. Um, I guess they're smart enough to take it serious. I'm not smart enough to take this serious. But the idea is that we really don't exist. We just think we exist because we have been programmed and we're living really in a, in a computer. We've been programmed like in a computer. So I thought I was born on June 9th, 1964, and I, I think I knew who my parents are. The reason I think that my life is the way it is is because I've been programmed to think that, and you've been programmed to think this, and it, it, it makes up our reality. But the people that programmed this are the people that came before us. They had this dream. They had this idea. Hey, let's do this. So we think we exist, but we don't really exist. I mean, have fun with that. Cause so the, the people that dream this up, the generations before us that dreamed it up, what if they are a dream from the generation before them? And they're a dream from the gen- And they were programmed. You, you kind of get into the same thing. But the idea is that truth is important and there's a place for doubt. We have to be curious and we have to go after it and, and find it. We want to. That's reflecting the image of God, taking dominion. But the enemy comes in and he plants doubt where there absolutely should be no doubt, where God wants us to be absolutely sure and enjoy the sureness, if there's such a word, of the truths that he has given us. Satan is audacious. He is audacious enough to approach the Son of God, his creator, with doubts about his own identity, his true identity. Satan likes people to live wishy-washy and not know things or not quite be sure or think I know, but I'm not sure enough to really throw myself 100% at it. He wants us to feel like we know a little bit everything, but not anything that everything eventually is up to grab up for grabs. He's a great counterfeiter. We learn that in the book of Revelation. The great counterfeiter. So I'm preparing this sermon. I'm thinking about this in one of my um, devotions in the morning was out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. Very, very popular verse. Probably most of you know it by Memory, the, the ESV, I memorize an NIV, but the ESV version is it's about faith. Now, listen to the definition of faith given to us by the word of God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the or the conviction 
of things not seen. What does assurance mean? If he's defining, what does it mean to be a person of faith? Assurance um, means that which provides the basis for trust and reliance, trust, confidence, assurance. How about conviction? You have two very strong words in this one definition of faith. Assurance, conviction, evidence, normally based on argument or discussion as to the truth or reality of something. Proof, verification, evidence for. Does that at all sound wishy-washy? Like, is there anything in there that, that speaks of uncertainty? It is the exact opposite of uncertainty. Uncertainty. It's the exact opposite of, of doubt and wishy-washiness and not knowing. They speak of absolute confidence. And the idea is this. If that's what faith is, and it's impossible in chapter um, verse 6 in that same chapter, he says it's impossible to please God without this kind of faith. Then God wants us to live like this. How? Certain about things. Absolutely confident in his spoken, revealed word. I mean, there are a lot of things we don't know. There's a lot of things that we might feel insecure about. And he's given us this beautiful gift of things that we can be secure about. And we should be secure about. And he wants us to live like that. Sure and certain. That's a good way to live. That's the way he created us to live. Not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's, it's, you believe it to the point where you actually act on it and live like it. And not say you believe it, but live like you don't believe it. That's no fun. It's, what a beautiful gift of God. So conviction says, and assurance, you know, I've, I've thought about it. I've taken the big ideas of life and all the arguments and all the pros and cons. And, and I've taken them into the courtroom and I've found the answers. And it's God. And it's his revealed word. That's where I came from. And that's what life is all about. And that's who I'm supposed to be living for. That's where my meaning comes from. And my purpose. They're my absolute God and rule for, pract- for the practice of my life. It's what I'm going to go by. The word of God. Well, Satan doesn't want us to be confident about these things. It's kind of like I think about it as. When you think about the definition of faith, uh, like walking on ice, you know, it starts. And I'm not talking about Wisconsin ice where they drive trucks over. I'm talking about ice around here. You know, our weather is a little iffy and you're like, oh, the pond is, is frozen over. Is it? You, you don't always know how thick it is around here and stuff like that. And so or just whatever you want thing ice, on thin ice, you know, the idea. So you're on it. You're not exactly sure how thick it is. And you are very tentative with every step. Oh, I hear it cracking. How far is that crack going to run? How many cracks is it? And how far am I away from solid ground again? You're so tentative. You're so nervous. You're so anxious about every little step because it, it, it may sink you. And the water's cold and you might not be able to get out. And then people can't come and get you because their ice might break. And all. It just, it's just this, this whole lifestyle of insecurity. And yet God says, build on the rock, man. Build on it. Live your life on it. I've given it to you. It's right there. It's your reality. That's how I want you to live. I don't want you... Just so reluctant about certain things when I've given you certainty and 
surety. You know, conviction. I also thought about, I've been a Christian about 32 years. And I'm pretty sure, based on my very limited experience and what I've seen and what I read in places I've visited, that the church, by and large, does not have the same strength of conviction or degree of conviction that it did 32 years ago about things. Uh, That's just me. Didn't write a book about it. You know, it's just, it's just, I think, my observation based on what I read and what I see. It's just, there's been a loosening of, of the church's grip on things that God has given us that we should be certain about. And th- these constant doubts of Satan can just, yeah, they, they, they can wear us down. They can loosen our grip. So, we're not so sure anymore that Jesus is the only way. I mean, that's just so exclusive. And there's a lot of good people out there. And there's a lot of good faiths out there. And, it, and you know, some of the people I know that are of different faiths are, are, treat me better than some believers I know. And is Jesus really the only way to heaven? Is, is that the only way I can be saved? And... We're not so sure about things like marriage. You know, is marriage still relative? Is it only one man and one woman? And and is it defined as a covenant like God says it is where you're in this commitment and it's through better for worse and that's it. And you get into it and, and you don't get out of it. Is our conviction about these things the same as it used to be, even perhaps in our own lives, however long you've been a Christian? We're not sure about these things. And church is another big one. I've watched the the conviction about church erode. That's something kind of in my generation. Is church really a good thing? I mean, isn't it this man-made institution? Everybody knows that men abuse power and there's all these troubles in this man-made institution. And can't I just do my own thing or have my own kind of church? And so, and, and the result is that the church, which is the people of God, are not as committed to God's idea of church. And how can that be a good thing? There's, there's not a conviction about it. Like, this is right and this is good and this is what God wants, so I'm throwing myself into this thing. We're just not sure about things that God intends for us to be sure about. Now, who do you think is behind that? Lack of commitment. How can you commit yourself to something that you're not sure about? Now, let's not miss out on an opportunity to to learn about the incredible sureness of God and this idea of commitment and covenant from last week's testimony from Pat and Dwight when they stood up here and said, uh, I'm I'm stepping aside, still not going anywhere. I'm stepping aside because I believe God has something else in mind and wants to do things uh, through other people. But I've served, I believe it was 32 years. Why? Why that long? In, in all the, the, the ups and downs and uh, the, the, the burdens that are involved in eldership. Why that long? Because of the word covenant. Because of commitment. That's what makes you hang in there with things that are right and good and sure. And that's how 
God wants his church to be reflected. Those kind of commitments to things that are good and right. He's it's a reflection of the image of God. So. I'm not going to get to point two, am I? Uh, Sometimes. And that's okay if I don't. We got a late start. Whatever. We'll we'll finish. But I think sometimes we, we want to just stop. And examine our hearts. For perhaps places where ifs have come in and have no business being there. What do we really believe? What, where, where is our assurance? What kind of things do we have strong, unmovable convictions about? Where has doubt crept in? Where has fear and anxiety crept in? Where has perhaps doubt led to eventually unbelief? Wrestling with should I do the point two or not? Um, sorry about that, but I don't, I don't, I don't really have time to develop. So we'll save it for another time. But uh, what I do want to do is just close with that idea. It's the idea of if doubt, surety, conviction. I mean, what does the Word of God say? And do we trust God? If we don't, it'll show. And God wants us. Our souls to just be, you know, in that hammock, in that safety net of trust, not by bread alone, but by the word of God for our marriages, for our children, for our church, for our futures, for the future of our soul. And sometimes we have to settle these things for Jesus. It was settled. Of course, the temptation was to not trust God. If you are the son of God, prove it. Eat bread. You're God. God shouldn't be suffering. God shouldn't be hungry, right? So make yourself some bread and eat it. And it was a temptation. Jesus' answer tells us what it's about. I don't live according to the flesh. Yeah, I have hunger pains. That's not what rules me. My will is submitted to my Father God. That's how much I trust Him. I even trust Him with my life. Same temptation came at the cross. If you are the Son of God, get yourself down from there. Why you're suffering? You're God. You can do miracles. Do a miracle. Just just float down. Do something. And Christ stayed on the cross. Why? Because He submitted to the will of His Father. His life, His death, His resurrection. He trusted Him for all of it. Satan does not want us to trust God like that. So think about your life. Think about the things you believe. What kind of circumstances are pressing in your relationships? There is surety that God wants you to have. It is a blessing. It is something that we can rejoice in and embrace and love and stomp on and dance on, sleep on, sit on, stand on, walk on. It is the truth of God. And may he bless the preaching of his word. This morning, but I just remembered I said I was going to close with the story. So let me close. Let me close with these words back up about a paragraph. Satan wants to write your story. He's whispering things. And I didn't get to the second point. I will later. But he starts quoting scripture to Jesus. He wants to write our story. Fill it with doubt. Fill it with lies. Fill it with false teaching. Don't let him do it. 
The song we heard is this is my story, my song. Let God's story. God's story is your story and your song. Sing it with vigor. Now may God bless the preaching of his word.